Curious, anybody in here um, ever gotten a dental crown? Anyone in, in the club with me? Last year, I was getting a crown set, and they, they were putting it in, and if you've ever had it done, as they're putting that final crown on, remember they're filing and working on it, so you have more time to talk to the dentist and the dental assistant than you normally do because their hands aren't in your mouth. So they're working, and I had this question that I really wanted to ask, and I just asked it, and it was, have you ever been working in someone's mouth, and you can tell that they're totally licking your fingers on purpose? <laughs> Now, I know, I've told this story before, and people judge me for asking that question. But here's the thing. Now that you know I've asked it, you want to know the answer, don't you? Especially because I'm telling the story, you know there's an answer. So the doctor, do you know what he says? No, never. But the dental assistant, he chimed in, and he said that he has seen it happen. He was working with another dentist, and so he starts to tell the story. And he opens up by saying there was this woman who was just kind of odd. She'd always come in and she'd tell the reception like how handsome the dentist was. And she'd tell their assistants how handsome the dentist was. She'd tell the dentist how handsome he was. And at this point, I should have realized this story is going to be better than I thought it was going to be. And so they, she's, she goes to the back. She's saying, oh, you should date my daughter. And they're they like, we could tell by the way she was saying it. She was kind of living vicariously through the daughter, you know. So she's this much older woman and she's talking about how handsome he is. And He's working, and he said, and she, she would just started licking, licking his fingers, and they, they said we could tell because she was going, nom 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 nom, and so I start laughing hysterically. They had to stop and wait for me to clear my tears, and so I, I asked my question, I get my answer, and it was so bizarre. I, I had nothing but more questions to ask, so I said, "What did you do? What do you do when that happens?" I would like to know. Remember in a scenario of having my fingers licked, and I don't want him to. I want to know what someone else did. I take glean from their wisdom. So I asked the dental assistant, I said, what did you guys do? And they said, he says, nothing. It was so awkward, we pretended like it wasn't happening. <laughs> so imagining this, like, doctorate degree dentist, hands in the mouth, just frozen, and you got any plans for this summer? And just, weirdest story I ever heard. Uh, they had to get back to filing. I had more. Had more questions I could have asked, but they had work to do, you know. Did you let her come back again? Did you talk to her about it afterward? I don't know. But there's this, uh, this reality that if we ask a question and we get back a bonkers answer, we have more questions. And I think that that dynamic is going to help us honestly understand the passage today because we've been looking at what, what happens when God doesn't. We're looking at what happens when God doesn't answer prayers, doesn't do things the way we are, and we, we, we just... We come to God so honestly, so earnestly, so desperately, and we're met with total silence. And we're studying this through Habakkuk, and so we, we read last week his question. Today we're going to read God's reply, which is crazy. And then uh, now Habakkuk has nothing but more questions. And it's going to be easier to track that way if we understand that. We're going to read Habakkuk has asked a question. God replies, Habakkuk shocked and asks more questions. So the series is titled, When God Doesn't, but today we could honestly title it as, When God Doesn't Do It the Way I Thought He Would. Judah is falling apart, the nation. Injustice and lawlessness, corruption, violence is at an all-time high. And Habakkuk has been wise enough and brave enough to, to bring his questions to God, his questions not just about what's going on, but his questions about God to God. God, why are you not doing anything? 
I've thought about this every way I can. I don't understand why you aren't doing anything. This question last week essentially boiled down to, why do you look at injustice and violence in this land and you do nothing? And now we, re- we spent last week reading the question. Let's read uh, the Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch, says the Lord, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am rising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth, seizing dwellings not their own. They are feared and they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Actually, you know, I read too far. We're going to stop there. I was supposed to stop at six. Let's back up, folks. I spoke on this last week, and if, you're, if you weren't here and you want more of the background of the book, last week would be a good, you could listen to the first 15 minutes and um, you would get that background. But I'll just, we'll do the, the Reader's Digest quick summary. Assyria has been the dominant global power for centuries. I mean, as far as it goes back, it's just been Assyria. There, this is the, the empire whose capital is Nineveh, which is why um, Jonah is written during their reign. They are the kingdom that, or the empire that wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. If you, if you forgot, after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel. Almost all the tribes side with another king, and only two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stay with David's line. Today, those two tribes, plus a few Levites, are all we have left of the Israelites, which is why we call Israelites Jews, Jew for Judah. So at this point, Israel in the north is gone, wiped out by the evil Assyrians. And when they wiped you out, they wanted you gone. They wanted no cultural history, background, ethnicity, national pride. They would wipe you out, force you to interbreed, get rid of your gods, get rid of your kings. And so when they conquered a place, they were just simply gone. And, uh, all of those tribes in the north, um, they, uh, Dan and uh, Reuben, they are gone. They are a very hated nation by the uh, Jews, and they've fallen. Now, uh, in their time, though, they conquered many kingdoms. That's what defines an empire, a kingdom that conquers little kingdoms, and they run them. And one of the, one of the little feathers in their cap is they conquered Babylon, sort of like an antique country. And I think, honestly, the British felt that way about Egypt. There wasn't much of Egypt to run when they had it, but they were proud they had it. That's how Babylon is seen. It's a dead and ancient uh, empire that ruled nearly a thousand years ago, and it's been mostly in ruins. As, as Assyria begins to wane, though, as it begins to fall under its own weight, the Babylonians begin to get some courage. One particular tribe, and in fact, your Bible might say I'm raising up the Chaldeans, not the Babylonians. That's the actual literal word used. The Chaldeans were a Babylonian tribe that, that were in the southeast, the furthest from Nineveh, and they liberated themselves first as a tribe. Their chieftain then went to Babylon and convinced them all to join him, and Babylon as a nation fought against Assyria, eventually marches into Nineveh, and ends the Assyrian Empire. At this point, the whole world saw that region as gone. The Euphrates empires are dead, and with it weakened in the whole area, everything's collapsed in on itself, they would have a time of peace. They're viewed as weak regional power, too far away to worry about. A rise of Babylon sounded like science fiction. Because it's really, if you think about it, it's a big step to go from a little regional power trying to get your independence to having aspirations to running the world. You would think that would take centuries. Historians think that it should have taken centuries. And it's still as shocking to historians to look at today. Neo-Babylon raises at 
breakneck speeds that still dazzle historians today. How did Neo-Babylon raise so high, so fast? It's less of a wonder to Christian theologians because God says to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon through a prophet that it was the Lord who laid the kingdom at his feet. Babylon was raised up for a point such as this, for this purpose. What's interesting is it says, look at the nations and be amazed. We miss it because we don't have the same verbal tense in English, but it's called imperative in in, uh, Hebrew. It means it is a command. He's being ordered to be amazed. And it's kind of like you could think of Jacob Marley. He comes to Scrooge and says, why do you doubt your senses? This is God saying, I'm about to tell you something, and I'm telling you, doubt your senses. It It doesn't make sense. It's not going to feel like truth. I am ordering you to believe it and to be amazed. It isn't the truth you would expect, but it is true. And Habakkuk finds out that his batting average of predicting what God will do is about the same as mine. He's at zero. You ever predicted the way your life would go? You ever successfully predicted what God would do? Because I have yet to do it. I I seem to be blind in this area. Honestly, I, I could predict a million paths forward, and all I know is that I've eliminated one million ways that it could happen. The ways that God goes and what he does, he surprises. I never endeavored to to be the lead pastor. Actually, years and years before this ever became a possibility, there was uh, some talk about that, and I I didn't say no. I said, heck no. Um, I never imagined uh, my two girls. I didn't predict them, what they would be like, what raising them would be like. And I'll tell you, on the day I met my wife, I didn't have that moment that people claim to have where God was like, that's the woman you're going to marry. I was just dopey and ignorant. I was eating pad thai. I don't know. It wasn't even a date. We ran it. It was like a mutual friend. We met, we met each other that way. Uh, I had no idea. I just imagined that, uh, you know, God was smiling ear to ear, and I was being a fool at the time, and he knew what was going to happen. And yet these things, the calling uh, on my life and family, these now impact my every single day. And I never would have predicted them. I had no idea they were coming, and yet they're major points in my life. I got to say, there is some freedom to knowing that uh, if God showed us our future, he would have to say, doubt your senses and believe it. We spend so much time predicting what could happen, uh, and it never does. A huge survey was taken at a conference recently, and it was asking people... uh, and it was their take. How often has the worst-case scenario come true for you? And when you think of these worst-case scenarios, and this is people who would be dramatic to maybe say it happens more often than not, and it was less than one in 1,000, meaning it basically never happens. We spend all of our life anxious and, 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 and knotted up over things that don't happen. Control is a complete illusion. All you really have is trust. You have, all you can really do is trust, it, and you, you're going to choose what you trust in. You know, I think there's things that even, when, you know, coming out of this pandemic, going into it, things we trusted were always going to be there. In, in youth group, I never thought that I'd have to do youth group over Zoom for several months. And you just assumed it would be there. You assumed that camps would be on. You just think these things will always be there. And you trust they're going to be there, and you count on them to make us 
get through. We count on them being there, and then suddenly they're just not, and they're gone. And we realize we were trusting in stuff, and we trust in them to have some control. Control is really an illusion. All you really have is trust, and you're either trusting in things that can be sapped away from you or trusting in things, uh, trusting in the one that will always be with you. I think Habakkuk, is, he's, he's struggling with these expectations because he trusted that things will always go a certain way when I'm with God. And now that they're not, he's struggling as to what his trust should be in. So we read to be shocked. Let's read a description of the Babylonians. They are a feared and dreaded people, starting in verse 7. They are a lot of themselves, and they promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at night. Their cavalry's gallop heads are headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their horses advance uh, like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose strength is their own God. We know a few things about the Babylonian or the Neo-Babylonian Empire in particular. Uh, is that they shared some similarities with their ancient thousands of years before counterpart. Their brand of warfare was super fast and brutal. Rome was, if you think of Rome, they were famous for great strategy. They could use ter- terrain, and what they really would do is they would take out major powers, and that's how they managed things afterward that built the empire. Babylon did things differently. They wanted to come in and brutally and fiercely crush the enemy rapidly so that war would end fast. Their use of cavalry was very heavy. The, the Assyrians, when they have these Uh, reliefs you can see that we still have historically, and it shows when they conquered the Babylonian kingdom, and it shows them conquering primarily the horsemen with spears, and it was this great thing to consider. We brought down the Babylonian cavalry. It is what they're known for, and they are brutal. To make war unbearable for the enemy and to end it quickly was their entire goal. If you want a war campaign to end quickly, don't use compassion and don't use mercy because compassion and mercy take time. It is the way that God does things. It's the way that he leads us into even evangelizing. We could find people who live lifestyles contrary to scripture and you can assault them and attack them. Or we can give them, uh, we can give them mercy taking more time, taking moments to be with them. And it may take longer, but it's the way the Lord asks us to be, to live in this world and to shine as a light to it and not to assault it. But that is not the way of the Babylonians. And there's something interesting that begins to be built in this description here. It builds on a theme in Habakkuk that you don't quite see until you read it and you look back. But there's a theological theme that runs very deep, that evil Evil has within it the seeds of its own destruction. That every evil act is a Trojan horse of disaster. To list Babylon's moral flaws is to list its many vulnerabilities. One of the things that is, it's a true historical fact, and it's written, it's recorded in scripture just the way that history has it as well, is that Neo-Babylon rose at breakneck speeds and fell before it reached about 80 years. It was a quick rise and a rapid fall, and the Persians are the ones that defeated them. 
Sin doesn't bear fruit, it bears thorns. God rose this empire up for a purpose, and as soon as they completed it, he smashes it back down and starts over. But that destruction isn't described here. The only destruction described there is what will happen to them. So Habakkuk now, has, he's asked his question, why do you look at injustice and do nothing? And God says, I do see it. And in fact, I'm rising up an even more unjust people to come destroy you for it. <laughs> and now Habakkuk is left with more questions. Maybe we're going we're gonna to finish this uh, question. This is Habakkuk's second question. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. Lord, have you appointed them to, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why uh, are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks and catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he, uh, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest foods. Is it he, uh, excuse me, is he to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy. It is a valid question. It is shocking. If you think about everything the prophets said about Judah needing to go into exile, even the first time it's spoken about, Moses prophesied it would happen before they even got to Israel, that one day you will rebel, the Lord will remove you from this land, and if you cry out to him, he will restore you. The whole point is, is that they have been unrighteous and unfaithful to God, and God can't stand the unrighteousness. He must do something about it. So he's sending Babylon. As bad as Judah is, Babylon is worse. And God doesn't disagree. There's no point where he talks about Babylon's great righteousness in their upstanding ways. And now Habakkuk's head is swimming. God is behaving in a way that is outside Habakkuk's expectation. And his feelings are laid bare. He calls God my rock. One of the last things, this, this desperate, this prayer that just desperately comes out, we get the sense that there was no waiting. He didn't go away, think about it, and come back. He sees the vision, and he begins to pray this desperate prayer. And we, we can get an idea a little bit of the rock, but we'd understand it more if we grew up in Judah you have to remember this is before roads are paved. Roads were dirt roads, and Judah is a place with shallow topsoil and a lot of rocks. And so what would happen is in times of warfare, in times of hurting animals, and in times of flood, the ground would become so miry, so clayish, you could lose your way, you could get stuck, lose your divisions in war, lose your uh, sheep in hurting them get swept away in, in currents as they came. And so it would be an astute soldier or an astute shepherd, or a person trying to find shelter quickly from a storm that would know the terrain and know where to find the rocks to make it to those things that they could stand on and to herd your sheep that way, bring your uh, soldiers in that direction. And we know that Judah used them in war often. They're the, in the same way that the Russians used winter and cold to their advantage, Judah used its knowledge of where the solid rocks were because once horses start tearing up the ground, uh, 
it worked in their advantage to know where to go. This uh, prayer we hear so often, in Psalms, in this, you are my rock, comes from that emotional connection with where you go when everything's getting torn up. Where do I go? Where do I stand? Because when you found the rock, you were sure-footed and stable. And I had an emotional connection much with it, like if we were to, if an Oregonian wrote a poem that said, Lord, your reign is always on my back, it would be negative. But if someone wrote that in a desert, arid climate, it would be considered positive. What he's saying is that he feels vulnerable and uncovered. He's discerned the right way to go and who to stand on. And that rock is not protecting him the way that he thought it would. It's behaving unpredictably. And this comes back to our central theme of the entire series. God is my only hope, and I can't escape feeling that he's left me to live like someone who has no hope. He feels absolutely lost and without a guardian. You have made people like fish, he says, and they drag us up. What a connection this is in the rich language that's in it. See, the, the sea is a wild and ruthless place where larger fish eat the little ones. There is no who shepherds the fish, who protects them, who watches over them. And he, what he's saying is that you have pressed us down, down, down below, and you've raised them up to where we are fish and they are men, and they harvest us at will. How can they do this? And how are they worthy of such a task? A couple months ago, we did a series on Joshua, and we talked about the word haram, or harem, and it means uh, things offered up in holy war. It could be burning of cities, offerings, giving to God. Uh, they, they even killed cities, and it was this thing offered up in that holy war. It's the exact same word in Hebrew, though, for dragnet. When he says they catch us in our net, they catch us in their dragnet, they sacrifice to their dragnet, the question is, how can you release these people to commit your holy war against us when at the end of the day and they're burning us, they're not even burning us to you, they're burning us to their own kingdom, to their own might, their own ability to take from us our homes, our crops. That's what they worship and you're gonna send them against us? The wordplay is powerful and it's missing in English. How can he do this? How is this ever going to work? We do know, since we have far more scripture, things that happen after Habakkuk's life, the restoration literature, the gospels, everything that God did through this horrible season, we actually do know how God used it. Long, long, long has the problem of idol worship been in Israel. The patriarchs had problems of, of, of the mothers of the family stealing idols from their fathers. They had an issue in the desert of building a calf to God that didn't even get to the promised land before they started worshiping idols. They got there in one generation to the next, could not pass a pure faith in Yahweh because they kept falling back into idols. And in uh, Judges, this is the cycle. One generation rises up and they are a righteous generation. Their kids after them worship idols. God judges them. Then their kids rise up and the Lord gives them a judge. And it's this thing of generation to generation just cannot pass. The baton, they can't keep it going. And now, 
At this point, they didn't even pass it to them own selves in their generation. In four years, Josiah was king of Judah. They were cleaning things up. Things looked like they were going to be okay. And in four years, it's completely decayed again. They're failing to uphold it even themselves. And it is at an all-time low. This problem of idol worship is as Jewish as Jewish could get at that time. And God wants them to stay close. I, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter went with my, my parents to New York, and I was terrified for her to go. She's just got no spatial awareness. She'd walk right in, right in front of us. And she'd be like, I was scared to send her because it's a busy city. So I hear, never been. But I was worried to have her there. Parents want their kids close in busy traffic, and it's, the, it's a time that the parent who says, I will never yell at my kids, will scream themselves hoarse. When your kid's running in front of a car or goes out into the street, you're not saying, all right, did you make a wrong choice? I think you need to make a different choice. Are you not desperate to get them out of it? Even if, it, even if, it, if, it, if they don't like it, maybe they need to not like it, that they may not go out there again. God wants Israel to stay close in this heavy traffic of false gods. They are at risk when they go away. What was the point of Josiah's reign? Honestly, if you read, if you read 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you see the picture of the decay of the kings. You see all the wicked kings that rise up. Josiah comes out of nowhere. He reigns as a righteous king, cleans things up, does things that everybody else said we had waited to do that. All the kings, they end their reign, and they say he, he, lived, he walked in the way of David, meaning he did it right. Some of them were said to be this way. But it always says after them, they left the high, they left the high territories, they left the temples up high, all the places people would go to sacrifice to idols. When Josiah becomes king, he's so devoted, he actually gets rid of them. Both Chronicles and Kings say Josiah got rid of them. They say he's the most righteous king to reign since David. His reign was short, but it was great. Great things happened. He is slain in battle, and immediately the nation returns like a dog to its vomit. After everything that had happened, Josiah proves to the nation that they were a lot further than just a few simple reforms away from being where God needed them to be. This sin lay deep, deep, deep in their heart. Whatever Habakkuk thinks that God can do in a little bit of time, without some judgment, without a little severity. Josiah is the proof that that wouldn't work. Their sin was way too deep in them. Something does remove this stain of idol worship forever. Compare Judah in the Old Testament with Judah in the New Testament. The Judeans have no idol worship. The synagogues are strong. They are very serious about keeping religious purity. You feel like you're reading about a completely different nation. And in many ways, you are. What purged them forever from it was the exile. From this time forward, we just never see it again. In Jesus' day, we don't see it anymore. No idol worship to confront. The only thing Jesus had to confront were people that believed wholeheartedly in Moses' law but perverted it. Jerusalem wanted patchwork but God knew they needed to be taken down to studs. If you, get a, if you get a home and you've got mold in the wall, you could put all kinds of layers of paint over it, and the mold will keep coming back. But until you rip it down to studs and find where is the water coming in at, it just doesn't go away. God was too good 
to not take them down to studs. It says in the book of Hebrews that the son he loves, he chastens. There are two sons at play here. One is named Judah, one is named Babylon. Babylon has long forsaken God. And when they fall and they're destroyed, they don't come back to them. It was different. There was judgment on them. But there was chastisement on Judah. That God rose Judah up, tried to parent them, did the best that an infallible God could do, and in the end had to bring punishment down on them to restore them back, to to rip them down to studs that they could be rebuilt as a nation ready to receive their Messiah. Habakkuk is worried about lawlessness and evil, and so was God. But because Habakkuk is so fixed in his mind, his expectation of what God would do, what it would look like, things seemed really good under Josiah. If we could just get back there, everything would be fine. It's too fixed in his mind. That is what leads to his deep sense of loss. He couldn't find himself in the redemptive story. At the beginning of this book, God asked, or, or excuse me, Habakkuk asked God, why do you tolerate this? Why doesn't this bother you? Why do you let these things go by? And to Habakkuk in this book and to all the prophets before the exile, the prophecies, they match, they fix each other, the messages from God fit. And if you were to distill them down, that comes down essentially to this. If you ask me, Habakkuk, does it make me sick? And I have to say, more than you know. I tell you, I will humble this nation and I will crush them with a, with a nation more wicked than themselves. And they will realize that their ethnicity as Israelites is not the same as righteousness. And in so doing, I will shake this nation top to bottom. And what remains is this. Those that endure will remember the love of their forefathers. When they lose the land, they will remember that it is land and it is I and not the land that makes them Israelites. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God, and this lawlessness will be purged from them. And then I will send a Messiah who can call them home once and for all. I think of that phrase so often from Ezekiel, a prophet that began prophesying once the exile began. It was so severe, it was awful. They were carried away. King Jehoiakim had his eyes gouged out. It said that he was chained up in the Babylonian palace and kept to be mocked and terrified that other kings would do exactly what Babylon said because that's how they waged war. Look how horrible it is. Don't even think about questioning us because war will be swift and it'll be brutal. And again and again and again, God says through Ezekiel, when this is over, then they will know. One of the most common phrases in that book, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. God loved them too much to let them wander into the street. The son he loves, he chastens. He raised two nations up for such a purpose. He raised up Israel to be his message about his kingdom, to send a Messiah out from to bring all the world home. And he rose Babylon up to chasten and to break them. Habakkuk's frustration is born out of inaccuracies of an expectation. And I can't say that every time that we feel abandoned by God, it's because our expectations, our calculation is way off. But it certainly seems to be more cases than not. I find I, I don't complain about God's hard and difficult pro- process once it's over. You're grateful for everything. You're grateful for the hard things that taught you good things but I sure am a whiner in the middle of it. 
because we don't know what we're expecting. We don't know what's ahead. And as we think and we imagine all the ways it could go forward, it doesn't go the way that we would think. As I read this, Habakkuk has no imagination of of, uh, Babylon will rise up, they will be exiled. Persia will rise up, and God will speak to the king of Persia to restore them, and they'll go back, and they'll build a new temple, and God will watch over them. And they may not ever be a fully independent kingdom for very long, but when they are ready and everyone knows the Torah and everybody's practiced in it and the whole nation knows what the word Messiah means, then the sun will come. He may not have known those things, but it's where it was going. All I can say is I wish my expectations would be adjusted beforehand. That before I have to get there and find everything that God did that I could say, well, this must be going somewhere. And I got to go look at my old track record and realize I stink at predicting the future. I'm very bad at guessing God's will. And I'm going to wait. Habakkuk isn't ready yet. The questions and the conversation isn't complete yet. But he does one critical thing. He learns that in his doubt, he still remains with a rock. At the beginning of chapter 2, he finishes this prayer with this. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He doesn't walk away. When we're disappointed and frustrated by God and we're getting no answers, you can only really walk towards him or away from him. Even when your instinct says God is the problem, you're going to have to choose to follow him even if it's uninstinctually, to doubt your senses, to doubt uh, the false belief of control and the ability to predict what God is doing. Life with, series is a, or life with God is a series of unpredictable and unbelievable turns. And just because you don't know uh, how it will work doesn't mean it isn't going to work out. It's because we haven't predicted it yet. And when his process is done, it does more than we ever could have thought. They, they, you think of is Jerusalem afraid for its, its fate and its future, wanting to just go back and have some patchwork done, get it cleaned up enough that we can keep moving forward. And God wants to go down so deep that it will change them in a way that is better than what they asked for, even if it hurts on the way there. 1 Corinthians 2.9 is so perfect to reflect on at the end of today. However, as it is written, it says, What no eye has seen, and what no ear has heard, and what no human heart has conceived are the things that, are, that God prepares for those who love him. We can't predict what God is going to do, but you are not Babylon. You are not going through hard times because the seeds of injustice have grown up inside of you and the Lord's not ready to pluck them out. You are far more like Judah. And if you're going through hard times, it's because God is doing things that you need. And even if you can't predict where they're going, you need to have faith that he is the answer in being with him. Even when you don't understand why the solid rock isn't doing what you want, to find that solid rock and to stay there to say that I will wait here until I hear my answer. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to station here with you, God, even though everything in my instinct says, you're the problem. That we would remain with God, allow him to structure us, and to let the, the liberation 
of the discovery of the plans, where he went with it, affect our expectations today. As bad as it is, as hard as it is, the Lord did not abandon Judah. It was not for their ill that he throws Babylon up against them. It was for their good. In good and in bad, it was for their good. When Christ came and it was peace on earth and goodwill towards men, it was for good. It is for your good in good times and bad. Lord, today we come before you and we ask that you would you would help cut the ties that we've cast into the future, the thoughts and the ways that we've said, what, what, if God works in my life, it will look like this. If God is gonna deliver me, if he is truly dedicated to me, this is the portrait of it. God, I pray that we could feel some liberation as we cut those ties of expectation. Give us the, the wisdom as we look back on our life and we look at all the ways you worked in it, we realize we didn't, com- we didn't predict any of this. I ask that we would be liberated in our own expectations, that if we're asking questions and we're frustrated, that we would have the patience to say, I don't know if I'm gonna get an answer today, but I'm not going anywhere. I know my solid rock, I know my Lord, I know the one that guards me. And though it is, it's not like I felt before, it doesn't feel like the Christianity that I knew, you're still the God I know, and I will remain with you. Lord, I pray for that liberation that we could just simply trust. Help us to trade with you today our control for trusting you.